If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, if you have one of the uh, free Bibles off of the welcome table, um, it's on page 896. We'll be there this morning. We're going to look at verses 30 through 50 today. Now, the 12 disciples are going to get this um, picture of what the kingdom of God looks like from Jesus, and it's going to be radically different from what they're thinking. We, we've sort of seen this progression, right? All of the first half of, of, of uh, Mark's gospel, it, it was this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this man? And now they finally come to the conclusion he's the Messiah in Mark chapter 8. And so then now their, their, their focus starts to shift into what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? What does this mean? If he's the Messiah, what's the kingdom going to look like? And they have this idea, but they're wrong. Now, whether you're familiar with this passage or not, when I say the phrase kingdom of God, you have an idea of what that means, right? I have an idea of what that means. We all have something in mind. And the reality is none of us have a perfect understanding of it. And so like the disciples, we need to be constantly challenged in our thinking about the kingdom of God and, and, and what it actually means to follow Christ. Because Christ is the king with a perfect understanding of the kingdom, we need to, to constantly come to him and, and have him help us understand what it looks like. We need, to, we need him to help us understand it. And that's what he's going to do with the disciples in this uh, passage this morning. And, and, and if we're willing, if we, if we come, like James says, to humbly receive the implanted word of God, then that's what he'll do with us this morning as well. Now, it's a larger chunk of scripture. Um, normally, I like to read it all in its entirety before we get into it. But uh, for time's sake this morning, we'll just work our way through it. But I want to I pray one more time specifically for this, um, that, that we would... Uh, we would have hearts ready to hear. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would guard our hearts against uh, self-exaltation, against self-importance. We pray that you would guard our hearts against um, swinging the pendulum too far the other way and shaming ourselves, we pray that you would help us to behold Christ in all his glory as king over all things, including our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that as we receive your word, that your spirit would do uh, the work that only your spirit can do to transform us and change us more into the image of the one who has rescued us, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I am one of three siblings, middle child, only boy. So you can have pity on me if you want. Um, but I remember growing up with my sisters, older one and, and younger one, and, and we, we would fight constantly over um, really trivial things, right? Like we always wanted to outdo each other. We always wanted uh, the better thing. If there was an option, we wanted the last brownie, right? We wanted the toy in the cereal box. My grandparents actually used to get three boxes of the same cereal so we could each have the toy. Um, they loved us. And, um, but, but, you know, we're, we're the first to call shotgun when we see the car, like I want the front seat. Right. And, and, um, you're laughing because, because you've probably done this too. Right. So you think back to your childhood and, and with your siblings, or even if you're an only child, you probably just thought you were the greatest anyway. Right. Your parents didn't need any other siblings. 
or any other kids. Um, but you probably had arguments with your friends too. See, this is, this is the thing. We look back on these things as children and we say that, that that's silly and ridiculous. But the problem is that that same mentality follows us into adulthood. It's why we have fast passes at theme parks. It's why we have VIP boxes at sporting events. It's why we have multiple social media platforms that center around us and gaining followers and subscribers and likes. It's why we have luxury vehicles and smart devices that listen to and follow our every command. It's glorious, right? It's why we have exclusive club memberships and rewards cards for all the places that we spend our money. It's why we have toilet paper shortages in pandemics. It's why we compare Sunday attendance between churches. This is not just a worldly thing. See, the reality is that we all have a tendency to want to be first in some way. We want recognition. We want honor. We want status. We like power. We like control. Jesus' disciples are no different. Once they knew that he was the Messiah, they assumed that because they were in his inner circle, part of the 12, that they were going to be given honor and status and authority when he took his throne. But in our passage today, Jesus is going to challenge that thinking about what it means to be one of his followers and a member of the kingdom of God. And we need to hear what they need to hear, because if we're going to associate ourselves with Jesus as his followers, then we too need to do it on his terms, just like the disciples did. And so really the main point of our whole message today is just Jesus' own words. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. So in this passage, we're going to see that, that we, we, we flesh that out. We, we apply that by um, living with humble hearts that are welcoming to others and unwelcoming to sin. We welcome what the king welcomes and we reject what the king rejects. So let's dig in. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he, he, being Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him, so there's a shift that's taking place here in Mark's gospel. Uh, most of the first half of the gospel is this public ministry of Jesus, and he's doing all of this ministry in and around Galilee for the most part, okay? And, and, and now they're making their way back through Galilee, but he doesn't want people to know about it because he's not, he's not really engaging the, the public anymore. There's less and less of that because he's shifting away from the miracles, because his disciples now know who he is. And now he's focused. He, he's, he's set on helping them understand what that means while they're on their way to Jerusalem. Because they think they're on their way to go take the throne with their king. But what they don't realize is that that throne is a cross. And so he tells them plainly what is happening. Why they are going to Jerusalem. In verse 31, he says, uh, he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men who will kill him. And after they kill him, he's going to rise from the dead three days later. Now that phrase, betrayed into the hands of men, depending on your Bible translation, it might say, um, 
that, that uh, he will be delivered into the hands of men. That, that's how it's literally translated. And, and so here we get this glimpse, okay, of, of this, uh, how a sovereign and good God uses the wicked deeds of evil men to accomplish his, purch his, his purchases. I think that's fair, but really his purposes. That's what I meant to say. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus says that it was necessary. The first time he explains plainly to the disciples, he says it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and to rise three days later. You see, the murderous plans of man succeed because the redemptive plan of God succeeds. It was necessary for the son to be delivered into the hands of men and suffer rejection and death so that the father could raise him from the dead three days later and seal the atonement for all of his people's sins. Peter himself later in the book of Acts would attest to this when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. 22 through 24, Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles. First half of chapter of Mark's gospel. Wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This is Peter's confession when the Holy Spirit comes. This is not Peter's confession right now. We need to remember where we're at, and Peter doesn't understand this yet, and neither do the rest of the disciples as they listen to Jesus predicting for a second time his suffering, death, and resurrection. And in verse 32, they're, they're afraid to ask him about it. Now, I don't know if you remember, but the disciples have been up to this point pretty eager to ask Jesus questions when they don't understand something, right? But they, they still couldn't wrap their, their minds around uh, a Messiah who was going to rule by dying. And, and they had no concept still, we talked about this last week, of a resurrection other than the one at the final day of judgment when all mankind would be raised and, and everyone would be uh, judged. They're quick to ask questions all for the first eight chapters of Mark. And now they're afraid. Why? Because they didn't understand enough to know, or because they did understand enough to know that they probably wouldn't like the answer. And none of them wanted to be rebuked like Peter was the first time he disagreed with Jesus when he predicted his death. And so they don't ask. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. Uh, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Now, they may not have asked Jesus to elaborate on his upcoming suffering and death, but they certainly didn't uh, remain quiet on the, on the road trip to, to the house, right? And so it's Jesus' turn to ask him a question. He says, what were you guys talking about on, on, uh, while we were walking? Now, do you think Jesus knows the answer? Yes, right? He's not asking this question because he's ignorant. He's asking this question because he's about to teach them something. Jesus does this a lot. 
but none of them wanted to offer up the answer to his question because none of them wanted to admit what they were discussing. Mark tells us though, because Peter told Mark, they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest and why would they be doing that? Because they were in the inner circle with the Messiah. They were one of the 12. In their minds, he was about to liberate Israel and take the throne for good. And they were going to get in on the action. They expected wealth and power and status and authority and honor as his right-hand men. And so they're, they're vying for position even among themselves. Remember when they were in the boat with Jesus back in chapter 8 and he warned them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, what did the Pharisees and Herod want? Wealth, power, status, authority, honor, greatness. That way of thinking is working its way like leaven through bread through the disciples. As they consider the implications of being in Jesus' inner circle. But it's exactly the opposite kind of thinking that Jesus said his followers ought to have. To follow him, he says, is to what? Deny yourself. Not to exalt yourself. But his inner circle needs a reminder of this. And instead of shaking his head in disappointment, we need to catch Jesus' heart here. Instead of yelling at them because they still don't get it, like we often do as parents with our kids. Jesus takes the opportunity to patiently and gently teach them what they need to know. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. In verse 33, Mark notes that they were in the house. So uh, they're in Capernaum right now. We've heard of this before uh, early in, in Mark's gospel. Uh, it's probably Peter's house where they've, they've spent a lot of time together, where Jesus has taught them before. Um, and, and we know from Mark's gospel, every time he mentions a house that they go into, what happens? Jesus reveals something deeper to the, to the disciples, right? He's going to reveal something important. Same thing here in verse 35. It says, Jesus sat down and called the twelve. Teachers often sat down when they were getting ready to teach. And we know, again, from Mark's gospel that every time Jesus summoned, called the disciples to him, the next thing to come out of his mouth is going to be something very important that we need to pay attention to as readers. What does he say in verse 35? If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. It sounds similar to what he said after the first time he predicted his death and resurrection, right? Mark 8, 34 says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christ's kingdom is one of self-denial, not one of self-exaltation. And to illustrate this, Jesus, while they're all sitting, stands up this little child, puts him in the middle of the room, and embraces him in front of the twelve. Now, in the first century, children were uh, often marginalized and, and, and considered to be among the least important members of society. They had no power, they had no status, they were completely and totally dependent. 
and needed to be cared for. And so in embracing the child, Jesus is making this shocking statement to the 12. Instead of seeking status of their own, they ought to care for those with little status and serve in lowly positions. If you want to be first, you need to be last and a servant to all. Why? Because the one, uh, or because by embracing the lowly in the name of the king, they're embracing the king to self, uh, themselves, er, himself. And Jesus says, not only are you embracing me, but you're embracing my father who sent me. When we do something in the name of Jesus, we're doing it as a representation of his nature and character. That's what the name is. It's an association with who he is. We're doing it on his behalf. And in his authority, as ones who've been sent out in that authority, and as Paul says in Philippians, we're adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And what was his attitude? Humility, service, obedience to the glory of God the Father. How was his authority exerted? In service to others. When we humbly serve others in the name of Jesus, we have this privilege of embracing not only those whom we serve, but also the Father and the Son in deep fellowship. No amount of accolades, no amount of status that we could gain for ourselves can compare with that in worth. Now, we live in a school district that serves underprivileged families. And so one of the practical ways that we can care for them in Christ's name is to provide backpacks and school supplies for those who would otherwise have difficulties getting those things on their own. But we don't do it to get a thank you. We don't do it so that we make uh, Redeemer Community Church the, the church. We do it because Christ is king. We do it to exalt the name of the one who redeemed us more than we do it to lift up the name of Redeemer community church. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. And because we know that our, in our lowliest state, he came to us. He took us in his arms and he served us by rescuing us from our sin and from God's wrath through his suffering and his death. And he raised us up with him and exalted us as co-heirs of the kingdom. And we didn't deserve any of it. And in this kingdom, we'll experience the lavish riches of his love and grace forever and ever in deep fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Like I said before, Bree's going to organize that effort, but she's looking for input and help. And so after the service, make sure you stop up here and talk to her. Jesus welcomes the lowly into his arms, and he's calling his disciples to do the same thing. They may concede to embracing the child, but they still want some semblance of privilege and authority. So John speaks up and he offers a, a rebuttal of sorts. Look at verse 38. Let's, let's just take the, take the everybody's uh, view off the child. Let's, let's talk about something else, Jesus. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. How about this guy? John is in the inner circle of the inner circle. He's with Peter and James, the three that went up with Jesus onto the mountain that we talked about last week. They saw him transfigured. They have the image of the king burned into their minds. 
And now he's acting like he's doing Jesus a favor by cracking down on some unsanctioned exorcisms. Okay, we get the child, but how about this guy over here? Right? Can we tell him what to do? But notice the irony in what John says. He's upset by the fact that some other guy is casting out demons, is driving out demons in the name of, the, of Jesus. Guess what the disciples couldn't do last week? Cast out demons in the name of Jesus. John's reason for wanting to stop this man, he isn't following us. Now, we should expect him to say you there. He wasn't following you, Jesus, but what does he say? He's not following us. The man is driving out Jesus, uh, demons in Jesus' name. He's representing Jesus' nature and character, and he's doing it on Jesus' behalf and in Jesus' authority. And yet that's not what the 12 are concerned with. They don't want him doing what Jesus gave them the authority to do because he's not a member of the inner circle. He's not one of us. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 39. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and who can, do, who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For, wherever, for whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Remember back in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand? That the religious leaders are accusing him of driving out demons in the name of Beelzebub? It's a similar principle here. The only way that the man is able to drive out demons in Jesus' name is if this man has already welcomed Jesus to use Jesus's language in verse 37. He, he's able to do something as Christ's representative because he's embraced Christ as his king. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 puts it this way. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him because he's on our side. He's not against us. He's for us. And then Jesus turns the tables on the 12. Look at verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. This is the first time Jesus refers to himself as the Messiah. Did you catch that? Doesn't say the word Messiah. That's the Hebrew term. The Greek term is Christ. They both mean the same thing, the anointed one. This whole time, throughout the whole conversation with the 12, Jesus has been using the phrase, in my name, in my name, in my name. Now he uses the name that he's referring to. It's Christ. To belong to Christ is to confess him as the Messiah, as God's anointed one and king over all things. It's to believe what Jesus says to be true about himself. This is the distinguishing mark between those who are his disciples and those who aren't. The 12 are focused on their self-importance and they try to stop this man who belonged to Christ from doing things in Christ's name. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. He belongs to me, but catch this. So do you. 
so do you. You don't want this man to get credit for driving out demons, but I won't let even the smallest and least glamorous deed done in my name go unnoticed. Whether they're driving out demons or giving you a drink. Did you catch that? Somebody gives the disciples a drink. If they're serving the disciples, he's saying, because you belong to me. They'll be rewarded for their humble service. We call ourselves Christians. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ as an identification that we belong to him. We are not members of an elite group. We are members of an elect group chosen by God based on, catch this, zero things that we have done and no merit of our own but based on everything that Christ has done and all the merit that he has earned on our behalf. We are his by his own doing, by, as, a, as a display of his own grace and mercy and love and for his own good pleasure and glory. We are Christians by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we're prone to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, right? Especially in a day and age where tribalism is so rampant in our culture and it's made its way into the church. Now, it's been there for a long time. It just feels like it's exponentially louder right now. And if we're not careful, we're going to be quick to criticize and maybe even condemn someone who maybe doesn't line up with us on every theological point that we believe. And we get easily distracted by our disagreements over these, these secondary things that we fail to uh, keep and pay attention to the main thing. Is that person that I disagree with a follower of Christ? Do they belong to him? Do they believe and hold firmly to the gospel that scripture teaches? If they do, they're his. We need to take care that we don't discredit someone just because he or she goes to a different church or is part of a different denomination, if he or she believes the gospel, he or she belongs to Christ. He is your brother. She is your sister. That doesn't mean that we welcome everyone and anyone blindly. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, 30, that anyone who's not with me is against me. And anyone who does not... Uh, uh, gather with me scatters. Anyone who doesn't welcome with me rejects, right? So we're still called to judge the fruit of a person's life. Only Christ truly knows those who are his because only he can truly see the heart. But he's taught us that the heart reveals itself in our words and actions, right? So we need humility because, listen, Sometimes our own words and actions don't line up with the faith that we claim to have. We need to give grace. We need to have patience. We need to walk with somebody in love and embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ as they proclaim the gospel together until it's very evident that they are no longer holding to that. We need to be humble enough to keep the gospel the main thing and welcome those whom Christ has welcomed. We may end up in different churches. We may disagree on lesser things, but listen, we can rejoice that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we, we belong together to the King. We don't belong to Calvin. We don't belong to Wesley. 
We don't belong to Luther or anybody else. We belong to Christ. Jesus isn't concerned that a man was casting out demons in his name, but he, he, he goes on to tell the 12 what he actually is concerned about. Look at verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a, that's a pretty big statement, right? The term little ones here refers to both children and to new believers. If you, if you think about the whole scene that we've seen so far, Jesus is probably still embracing that little boy that, he's, that he did a, a, a few minutes ago as he's saying this. But he also just told the disciples that another man who was casting out demons in his name is also his child. The disciples see the boy and the man as, as insignificant, but Jesus sees them as vulnerable and in need of greater care. And so little, little ones is this play on word, uh, words that refers to both views. Jesus just finished saying that even the smallest deed done in his name would receive great reward. And now he's saying that whoever takes advantage of his little ones and leads them to sin, that person is worthy of receiving a severe punishment. Now the Jews feared the sea. Maybe drowning is a, is a horrible form of death. And so the idea of being thrown into the sea just by itself would have been enough to to stir the pot here with the disciples. But Jesus goes a step farther. Milton millstones were used for grinding grain. There were two, two sizes, uh, a size that, that women could hold in their hands that consisted of a, of a bottom stone that was flat, horizontal, and then a, a, a top stone that was um, vertical, and you just grind it, you know, like this. There's that one, and then there's the donkey millstone, okay, that's so big that it requires a donkey to walk around it and, and use it to grind the thing. Which one do you think Jesus is talking about here? He says heavy millstone. That, that word in Greek literally means donkey. It'd be better for you to have a donkey millstone tied around your neck. That's what he's saying. If you have a donkey millstone hung around your neck, you go where it goes, right? It's pretty obvious. If it's going to the bottom of the sea, you're going to the bottom of the sea, and it's staying down there, and so are you. That's the point. It's a gruesome picture, but, but th this, is, this is the severity of what Jesus is talking about here. He's so serious about protecting even the most seemingly insignificant believer that he's willing to severely punish anyone who would seek to lead a little one into sin. Now, the disciples should be welcoming the little ones and guarding them against those who would seek to destroy them. Instead, what are they concerned with? Protecting their own honor in the kingdom. And so Jesus warns them that they too must be diligent to guard not just the little ones, but their own hearts. Look at verse 43. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. 
it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Maybe should have warned the parents that this was like a PG-13 passage today. But it's, this is Jesus. He's talking here. This is serious stuff. Notice the pattern, though, that he, that he communicates this in. He notes the way that they lead themselves into sin. And then he gives them the drastic measure to take to get rid of that sin, to stop doing that. And then he gives them the reason why. Now, the hand and the foot and the eye, these are all vital uh, and important parts of the body, right? They're of high value. But even the things that we value most cannot take the place of importance that is reserved for God alone. So if one of those things causes you to sin, cut it off. Gouge it out. This is what Jesus is saying here. Now we know he's not being literal here because he knows, and we know because we read it in Mark chapter 7, that Jesus taught that sin begins in the heart. If I cut off my hand, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything to take care of my heart. He's not advocating self-mutilation as the remedy to sin. He's pointing out the severity of sin and the drastic measures that we need to take in order to rid ourselves of it so that it doesn't consume us. Why? Because being thrown into hell is even worse than having a heavy millstone hung around your neck and being thrown into the sea. Jesus calls hell the unquenchable fire. In verse 48, he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. It's the very last verse in Isaiah comes after a couple chapters of, of promise of salvation and renewal from, from God to his people. But it ends with a warning to those who continue to reject God. And it warns them of the eternal consequences for that kind of thinking and behavior. Hell is a real place where rebellious sinners suffer unending punishment because the fire of God's eternal wrath against them cannot be put out. Why? They're thrown into hell because they've rejected Christ as king. And the only reason the fire is not put out is because Christ is the only one who can do it. That's the whole point. That's why it was necessary for him to suffer at the hands of men, to die, and to rise again three days later. They've rejected the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one who can quench God's wrath against them, and they've rejected that. So the worm never dies, and the fire never goes out. Jesus is making the point that it's better to enter the kingdom of God, having lost things of earthly value, than to go into hell holding on to the sin that took you there in the first place. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul, right? He's not talking about losing salvation here. He's warning his disciples about the seriousness of sin. Remember, one of the 12 is Judas. He's the one, he, he's one of the inner circle and, and he's going to be the one who betrays Jesus into the hands of men for 30 pieces of silver. We're going to see that Christ was never truly his king. But notice Jesus' heart for his disciples. He doesn't tell them that it would be better for them to be thrown into a sea with a millstone hung around their neck. 
He doesn't tell them it would be better for them to be thrown into hell. What does he tell them? It would be better for you to enter life. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God, having lost everything else here, but gaining everything there. This is the heart of Christ for all of his little ones, for all of his disciples. It's, the, it's his heart for you and for me as we've put our faith in him. It doesn't, he doesn't just want us to avoid hell. He wants us to enter life. That's why he willingly suffered the fire of God's wrath against us for our sin and quenched it through his death on the cross. And he rose from the dead three days later because the penalty had been paid and the father was satisfied. So, so listen. Listen to Jesus' warning here. There's no room for sin in the kingdom of God. It will all be dealt with. And as his little one, Christ has given you entry into the kingdom. So, so take whatever measure you need to take now to put your sin to death because Christ has given you life. Confession and repentance might lead to embarrassment. It might lead to pain. It might bring about unavoidable consequences that you really don't want to deal with. It might bring about loss. But with Christ, listen, confession always, always, always brings forgiveness and restoration. We put our sin to death, not because if we don't, we'll go to hell as believers. We put our sin to death because Christ has already quenched the fire of God's wrath on our behalf. And it's worthless. There is no reason for us to hold on to it. So don't hold on to something that Jesus has already paid the price for and set you free from. And if you've never believed that Christ is the true king and confessed your dependency on him, you need to hear this warning too. Because there is a real place of unending punishment. And everyone who rejects Christ in this life will remain in their sin. Every sin will be accounted for on the day of judgment. Every sin will have to be paid for. For every believer, Christ has already paid. For everyone who's rejected Christ, they will spend an eternity trying to pay that off and they'll never make it. Everyone who's thrown into hell has done so because they have rejected the one who can save them. But Christ is a good and merciful king. This is why he gives us the warnings. This is why he helps us to see now the severity of our sin and pleads with us to put it to death, to turn from it, to be reconciled to him, to trust him. He's a, he's a good and merciful king who, who does not turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. So no matter what you've done, Christ has rule and reign over that. There is nothing that his payment on the cross cannot pay for. There is no sin debt that remains in our lives when we come to Jesus. So do that. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God for you to enter life than to be thrown into hell. But Christ is the only way you can enter, so trust him. Believe him. 
following. We have two verses left, so let's see how Jesus finishes this conversation. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, out of the four Gospels, uh, accounts of Jesus's life, Mark is the only one that records this statement in verse 49. So it's important to him, but it's been a difficult statement for uh, people to interpret. And we don't have time to go into every possibility, so I want to just give you the, the one reason or the one interpretation that seems most likely. Fire and salt were instrumental in the sacrifices offered in the Jewish temple. Burnt offerings were only acceptable to God if they were completely and totally consumed by fire. Salt was not only a sign of the covenant between God and his people Israel, but it was also required as a part of every sacrifice. And so based on the context of the rest of this passage that we've seen here, it seems most likely that the fire and salt Jesus is talking about in verse 49 represents the trials and the costs that come with sacrificial living as one of his disciples. Romans 12:1, Paul puts it this way, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. One commentator on Mark's gospel put it this way. I thought this was helpful. Discipleship to Jesus lays a total claim on one's life. In the language of sacrifice, it must be totally consuming or it is worthless. Rather than consuming believers in frustration and failure, however, trials make their walk holy and acceptable to God. The disciple who takes up the cross of Jesus and follows on the way to Jerusalem, who nurtures the faith of another believer, who willingly forsakes things precious but injurious to the life of faith, is himself a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Now, pure salt doesn't actually ever lose its flavor. But in the first century, the salt that they sold in the market wasn't pure. It was a mixture of some things. And on humid days, the sodium chloride would leach out of it, leaving this residue that was useless and worthless. Jesus' longing is for his disciples to be pure and to be at peace with one another. He doesn't want them to argue about who is greatest. He wants them to see the great danger of, of sin and guard themselves and guard one another against it. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him. It's to follow him. Which way is he going? To suffering and death. But it's also to follow him in resurrection and life. We cannot forget that. Every time he's predicted his suffering and death, he's also predicted his victory. And in doing that, he's predicted ours as followers. This is the way to the kingdom. To follow Christ means that, the, to, uh, that we welcome all of those who, whom Christ welcomes and we reject all that Christ rejects. So to welcome Christ is to reject sin. And our own self-importance. So don't be consumed with self-importance. Don't be consumed with self exaltation be concerned with self-denial put your sin to death as you humbly serve 
those for whom Christ died and see the trials and the suffering in your life as God's purifying work in you. Because listen, you belong to Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gloriously good news of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is the king. That he came and did what no man could do. And now he's seated at your right hand, exalted on high, interceding, prayerfully concerned for his little ones. So Lord, strengthen our hearts through your spirit that you've given us, through your word that you've provided for us so graciously, through your church, fellow believers whom Christ has welcomed into the kingdom. Lord, would we welcome one another into our own lives in humility and love and service to one another because we believe Christ and his word. Would you help us to receive the help that we need to put our sin to death, knowing that Christ himself has empowered us and given us the means to do that because the punishment has been paid. And we are free to live in holiness and to be transformed again from one degree of glory to the next in Christ's image until he returns in all his glory. And we are with the King forever. We thank you for this time and we praise you that you rule and reign. May that be evident in our lives as we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen.